Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today, I have Dr. Nima Ramani. He is both a chiropractor and educator, specializing in helping individuals and professionals get to the root cause of their physical and emotional challenges, from stressed, depressed, and anxious to living powerfully aligned and on purpose. Dr. Nima, so welcome to have you on the podcast. And it's actually interesting what we just talked about before the podcast. I was talking a bit about the country where I live in, which is like Hungary. And they have a bit of a past of always making decisions that they mourn about with the uh, Ottoman Empire. Then in World War I with Austria-Hungary, they lost, I think, 72% of their territory, which a lot of people don't even know that they lost the most. And then in World War II, they also chose the Nazi side at the end, like I think in 1944. And you were talking a bit about intergenerational trauma. Could you talk a bit about what intergenerational trauma is and how it acts up in our life, in our family, and in our countries. Totally. The way that I want you to look at it as, it's like if you've ever, if you ever watched the movie The Matrix, right? Where Morpheus has this talk with Neo and kind of at this point where Neo, he knew that something wasn't right with the world, but he couldn't quite explain it, right? And so he takes the red pill and starts to discover that he's been always been part of this un, you know this background sense of structure that he was born into before you know he was be- even aware that this was happening and intergenerational trauma works very much the same way if you think of religious idealisms cultural decencies societal norms they form these imaginary structures in our brains and our minds of what's okay and what's not okay. And so it's kind of like, let's say, you know, if you were raised in uh, Iran, Mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden, you know, there was a, a girl that walks by who had a short skirt on and you're eight years old, you're an eight year old boy, your parents with a strict, strict up upbringing, they'll see you looking and then they might slap you across the face mm-hmm. for it. Okay. I'm just giving an example. And all of a sudden, Philip's normal impulse to be curious about that is met with a very strict, hard consequence of that's not okay, causing little Philip to have to make a decision in that moment at the age of eight, because he's totally unconscious. Do I go do I keep this curiosity going because it's naturally I'm curious about this or do I abandon, do I search for attachment to my caregivers because I can't survive with them without them? So internally, you're going to make this decision that you're going to abandon yourself. Intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. is that very thing. Essentially, if I could narrow it down to what it actually is, it's a conditioned self-abandonment passed down from one generation to one generation that tells the younger parts of ourselves that who we are at our core is not okay. And in order for us to survive and to make do and to really get our needs met in this world, in this strange, crazy, scary world that is not safe, that's not safe. In order for me to, to, to get these needs met, what I must do is I must abandon myself in order to do that. And so intergenerational trauma works that way. It's a chronic self-abandonment in service of approval, validation, safety, security. And it's an invisible matrix that we're all at the effect of and destroys our relationships, our health, and our sense of self-esteem. And only by examining it, unpacking it, taking full responsibility, not blame, and just stopping the entire blame game. We, we love to blame. 
We blame ourselves all this time. It was our fault. It's all my fault. Then we blame the other. No, it's all your fault. We go back and forth with this blame game. And to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma, we got to like throw that word out the window and just go inside and to take responsibility for what's ours and realize we all are at the effect of it. And this is, this is what I've dedicated my life to helping break the cycle of. What do you think of saying that blame is a projection of shame? Blame is a projection of shame. First of all, it sounds really catchy. So I'm sure it looks good on a meme on social media. Blame is a projection of shame. Of course it is. It's the same. It's exactly that. Here's what, here's what happens. And we get into relationships a lot. This is what will happen. will come up in relationships. I, I help people when they're in this limbo state in their relationship. Should I stay? Should I go? Mm-hmm. Separated, divorced, still wounded from a toxic kind of codependency. Our, our work helps to untangle all of that. And what happens is when people go through these conflicts within relationships, immediately our first kind of go-to is it's all my fault. Oh my gosh, it's all my fault. That's the natural thing that happens internally because that's the product of intergenerational trauma. So initially, if you and I get into an argument, Phil, then I'm going to, in my body, have the sensation of like, because you're a male figure, you you have a podcast, so there's an authority. In my mind, energetically, I might place you up as kind of like a father figure, even though you Mm -hmm. might even, I'm not sure how old you are. You might even be younger than me. It is okay, Um, my son. (laughs) Luke, I am your father. (laughs) (laughs) So what will happen is I'll put that, you and I get into an argument. Initially, I will go, oh, it's all my fault. That's what my somatic experience will be. But because that's so painful, I have to get rid of this pain. You know, blame is, is, is projected shame, as you said. So I'm going to say, how could you? How do you treat me like that, Philip? You're so disrespectful. So what I'm doing is I'm projecting my shame internally onto yours. That's pretty much what happens with most conflicts. You know, I have this and I had this myself that I was kind of in a catch-22. And a lot of people who follow me are like meet critical thinkers. They're kind of like rebels with a cause. They had to resist authority. Why? Because I had two catch-22 choices. Either I conform to what they expected of me, but I felt this is not me. I had to betray myself. Or I was being myself, but not being approved and acknowledged for being myself. So no matter which one of these two it was. You're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. That is the product of intergenerational trauma. This is why most human beings, now I've been a chiropractor for 20 years. I just retired from chiropractic to, you know, it's been five years kind of this last week. I said, I'm done with that because I really wanted to talk about this. This, what we're talking about right now is essentially the fabric of most conflict in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's the cause for why after you're 12, 13, 14, 15, and your teens, you start to feel this deep sense of low self-esteem, low self-worth, not good enough. This imposter syndrome of you want to go start a business and you're a free thinker and you want to write a book, the imposter syndrome comes up, which is who are you to be making that, you know, because you literally heard those exact words from your parents. You literally heard those things like your vision was taken and just dismissed and it was done. It wasn't done to harm. Okay. I can remember my parents are lovely, lovely human beings. They're not deliberately trying to harm me when they're invalidating me. Right. Or they're blaming me. They're not deliberately passing on patterns, right? They're just passing the torch of intergenerational trauma onto me through no fault of their own. But throughout my entire life, I was living like it's my fault, like I'm going to prove them wrong. And what happens is the unfortunate thing is when this is left uncorrected in the background, I, I'm going to use myself as an example, I then unconsciously move through the world wanting to prove them wrong. And what I'm actually doing is I'm wanting to prove the parts of myself that believe they're that them I wanted to 
prove them those parts wrong. So what I realized is I thought I was trying to prove them wrong. It turns out I was trying to prove the parts of myself that didn't feel it was good enough wrong. And me not knowing what was really going on underneath the hood was causing a great deal of anxiety for me. I was very much run by the ego, something to prove, no matter. And here's the crazy part. Maybe if I get make this much money, then that'll go away. No, it didn't. Maybe if I date this woman, and maybe if I have the approval of four or five different women, they all want me, and they all want to kind of acknowledge that I'm, they can't live without me. Maybe mm-hmm. then that'll go away. No, it didn't go away. Nothing I did externally ever caused that feeling to go away. You only get validated when you are a certain way or do something from your parents, and then you kind of displace that towards like an object of fame or money or women. And then that finally gives you the consent, like, see, I'm doing well. See, I'm performing well. See, I'm a good boy or good I'm, girl. I'm a good, I'm a, I, I'm a good person. I did the right thing. I did life right. This is where the midlife crisis comes in, right? Or quarter life, midlife, any crisis is basically a fracture from tr- the true self. Unconsciously, you wake up going, wait, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know, because we're literally, it's floating in the background. This is the matrix. And we all have a neo moment where we're called upon to wake up. You know, literally, he was woken up and to go follow the white rabbit down towards our own hero's journey to find a Morpheus of our own to help us come back to the truth that we are the one. And so this is literally the, the journey to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma that lands squarely in every individual's lap. Yeah, we think we're the parents, you know, the parents parented us, but us as a child, but we also patent that inner child, right? By repeating those patterns, repeating that same way of conversation and approaching things. So in the beginning, I was hating myself and, you know, like mostly towards myself and sometimes blame and frustration and intermittent with blaming my parents. So it started changing a bit when I really started with an openness, asking my mom and dad questions about what their story was, what frustrated them, where they came from. And then I had to bite my tongue. It was like, you're doing this to me. You're doing this. <laughs> You're doing this, to, this is the exact same. Wake how, up, how can you do this to me when you suffered so much from it and then you pass it on? You know, but I had enough. Oh, you nailed listen. it. Yeah. You nailed it. You're like, oh, what, what did that feel like, mom? That must have been rough for you, mom, dad. Wow. That must have been so hard. Oh, I know exactly how you feel. I was man. there. They were like talking like, yeah, man, and my dad, I couldn't talk with him. And they were like yelling and there was no communication. And it's like, yes, <laughs> I know exactly what that's like, you know. I don't have no clue what you're talking about, dad. No understanding. Yeah. So at the end of the day, what happens is we take on the work of healing that inner child, of rescuing and it breaking the cycle of intergenerational trauma means just what you just said is that we then become the parents to those little ones who are usually driving the bus of our life currently, which we don't even know, but they are. And then as we slowly become the compassionate parents that we didn't have towards our our little ones, what happened with me was magical, was that I was able to go from going from one repetitive pattern in relationship, codependency cycle again and again and again and again, to finally meeting and marrying into a secure relationship with my sweetheart who we have conflict, but it actually causes us to go closer rather than conflict. What it meant in childhood conflict meant breakdown. Shit was, you know, people weren't talked to for a while, wasn't handled. We actually have cultivated skills to handle our emotions, which is called becoming trigger-proof. I call it kind of becoming trigger-proof is how you break the cycle of intergenerational trauma. And when you can regulate your own emotions, you now then can enter back into a, a dynamic where you have two people who are wounded children rather than invalidating one another, learning how to validate ourselves and then come back into the conversation as functional adults rather than wounded kids. 
and now we have we have a seven month old son at this at the recording of this. And I never thought that I could be a father, but I'm a dad now, and I feel so prepared for this role and so excited about this role because if you asked me this five years ago, I would have said I'm never having kids, and so. Just this process has turned me into the father that I, that I wish that I had, you know, I literally became the dad to myself that I wish that I had. And then literally I have a reflection. This kid looks exactly like me <laughs> and, what, what, what uh, and I'm a ch- dad to him now. But what were your steps in this whole process? Was it, is it first awareness and finding an energetic load, a body load, frustration, anxiety? And then the next step is finding some ways to express it or reflect it about it, like what's happening yeah. here. And then yeah. you find a way to communicate or interpret it differently and deal with that, with the communication towards yourself and others. So what totally. are a bit of the steps? All of the above. All of the above. It's like I, everything that you just said. From the moment of you and I arguing and disagreeing, this is is what becoming trigger-proof really has become. And this skill that I never learned from my parents, but this is what I teach, it's kind of like emotional kung fu. You know what I mean? It's like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It takes time to learn how to combat and to work with your own energy and your body and what's going on in your own body. And becoming trigger-proof is very much the same thing. It's kind of like brushing teeth for your, it's like a toothbrush for your soul. It's an active form of meditation and communication strategy where from the conflict, you take the trigger and, and feel what it's about and extract the meaning behind it. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of love. I'm broken. Uh, I'm invisible. I'm not deserving. Whatever that is. And then from there, drop in and find the younger part of yourself that's fractured. Because this is a representation. Nothing that we go through, no conflict, nothing, you know, is really about what it's about. Like coronavirus, when it came out, people started getting triggered. Well, it wasn't mm. wasn't the coronavirus that was triggering them. It was it was the coronavirus experience that triggered whatever their childhood wound. Maybe they had authoritarian parents that said, go to your room, because boom, you're like, you're on lockdown. Oh, Philip now feels like he's got these authoritarian authoritarian parents that are saying, go to your room. We all got sent to our rooms. And so what we were all experiencing was our childhood wounding coming to the surface in, in the collective, right? And so extracting where that comes from is a skill that takes months to practice because we're so dissociated from our bodies. We're up in our heads all the time. We don't even know how to drop in and feel those feelings and then understand where they come from. Takes a good three to six months to start getting competent at this skill, but it's so worth it. And once you identify the younger part, you're now able to face and feel those feelings that were repressed back then or suppressed. You actually give permission and you feel them. Some there's a lot of tears. This is this this means in most cases finding the tears that you've been dis- disconnected from for so many years. Well, I don't cry. It's been four years since I've cried. I'm no because you're dissociated from your body, you know, the normal. Let's, let's give a practical step because I'm asking this question also for myself, by the way, but some people okay, who maybe listen, let's say you, you, you're freaking triggered. You're like something a client says to you and you trigger it like, oh my God, like you either blame it, like this guy is a loser. What the fuck am I doing? Or towards yourself, like, oh my God, I'm a loser. I'm not good enough or whatever. Something Both with a very happening. big energetic load. What are some options or what is something you would suggest people to do? Okay. To just sit so down, to reflect, thing. to envision things, to write down. Yeah. What, what, Hypotheticals what, yeah. don't work. Hypotheticals don't work. What you do is you close your eyes in what they said. Let's say the, the client says to you, you know what? You're useless. I don't want to work with you anymore. And they quit with wanting to quit working with you or they give you a harsh criticism. Or let's say, let's say a client postpones it, you know, and you feel like, oh my God, he's postponing it. We've been having so much progress. I'm not, I'm not doing good enough. You know, there like, you, you know, yeah. is it, is he taking what I'm doing for granted? You know, like, Bingo. by the way, clients, totally. I'm not thinking about you, but parts of me sometimes projects this, you know, and has totally, this conclusion, totally. you know, yeah. and which it should be more like curiosity, but that's sometimes like happening. I'm thinking like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm having a good, but that energetic load, that story, right. that self-talk so is that there, right? story is all about, you know, maybe if you go deeper outside of the story, there's that, that's the content 
in becoming trigger proof, we go beyond the content and we go into the context of that story, which is, I must not be good enough. If they're not taking my coaching, if they're not getting results, it's because I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm not good enough or I'm a failure. And then what you do is that in and of itself, that leap sometimes takes a lot of assistance and guidance because people are so much in their heads. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest obstacles to this is like, I don't know what that is. I just want to stay in story and tell about the story. And then he did this. And then, then I tried doing this. And then what, what I'm doing is that's my inner child trying to be validated in the story because I don't want to feel like a fucking failure. So what I do is I'm like, uh, uh, just stop the story and just go in and feel like the failure, which is so difficult because failure and weakness, especially for men, this is, we block that. So then that's why we have anxiety. We don't want to feel the failure. So you got to open up that trap door, which is a skill. It takes practice. It took me a while. It's not going to be, it, it takes training mm -hmm. to learn and open and then feel that failure. And then you ask the question, just like when, how old was I, when I, my earliest memory of feeling like a failure and being criticized? Well, who hasn't been criticized by a hard-ass father. You know what I mean? You'll probably have a five-year-old version of you pop up, Philip. And what'll happen in that moment is the next step is to really go in and feel the pain. And this is the thing you'll resist. Your ego is going to resist this. Feel the pain is what I, when I'm working with my clients, feel the pain of that five-year-old who got criticized by his father and felt like he wasn't enough. And I'll really allow himself to feel that and move that through his body, through movement, sound, emotion, all of those. We do this in breath work. It's a practice. Movement, sound, emotion, allowing the feeling to come in and move through you is literally a practice. Because we have been, this is how you break the cycle. We've been so disconnected from our bodies, disembodied, that we'll do everything to avoid what I just said. We'll do everything to avoid feeling. We'll get into story. We'll, we'll try to talk our way. We'll try to think our way out of it. And there's no answer. You just have to stop and just relax. And it's kind of like watching a child. When you really see them hit that wall of frustration, and then they surrender to their tears is a very powerful regulating impact on their nervous system. The child cries, they surrender to their tears, and then within about 90 seconds to three minutes, there's a profound release of energy in the body, and the nervous system goes from fight or flight or freeze up the ladder to what we call a ventral state, which is kind of like connection. And from that place, you have a like a felt sense connection to that inner child. And then you can talk to that kid inside. There's an, an imaginary conversation that you get into with that little child as though you were parenting him or her. You know what's again. a crazy thing? That people would rather control the narrative and have it be predictable as they always were than actually taking the pen and writing a story that's actually more interesting or has a better... Bingo. You Ending. just nailed, you just nailed one of the major resistances to the healing work is that you just said it like the, the Hungarians that you're around, they have this deep sadness in their soul, this feeling of regret, this feeling of remorse. We sometimes become addicted to it because it's so familiar. So what we'll do is we will resist healing will resist a new narrative because it's unfamiliar. We're so addicted to that old narrative of, I'm just not good enough. So we will go out seeking relationships with people who behave in ways and act in ways that end up having us feel what was so familiar. We go, ah, there's that familiar old misery again. And we get trapped there thinking that we're, we want to heal. We go to doctors, we go to therapists, help me, help me. And the truth is we just want to stay in the story. Most, mostly. You know what? This is, this is often what I see. You, you have a little dinosaur egg, right? And you want to treat it and you have a lot of care and love, but then you keep feeding it and it becomes this very big, evil, powerful dragon. And then you say like, yeah, I want it to go the way, but you know, when you're free time, you keep on feeding it. So it becomes more powerful. And this is something that I see in this triggered generation or social justice warriors that 
I sometimes see that they get their identity completely from fighting against something and being triggered. It's almost like this is 100%. what gives them the, f- the ground of existence and they don't want them to disappear. They keep on looking for things yeah. why it's so evil and bad. So it yeah. keeps on reinforcing that triggering and that yes. negative identity yeah. based on being yeah. against something or fighting against something. Totally. And the thing is, is that this becomes a blind spot. Okay. And so because they can't see it and the victim narrative, you know, they become victims and they identify with that and they go looking for that to feed the identity. Now, the unfortunate thing is, is that unless you agree with them, depending on the level and it's a spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? You see a spectrum of it. The, The extremes of it is where we have narcissism. You know, it's, it's where you, nothing else exists other than my story. There is no other story outside of mine. And if you, this is what, and if this is the the key, and if you disagree with this, then you're part of the perpetrators. This is covert narcissism. It becomes covert narcissism and you can't see it. Narcissists. The only way that, you know, someone's not a narcissist is when they go, yeah, I can be narcissistic at times. I could totally see it. The second that I own that, I'm a, yeah, mm, I could be a bit of a narcissistic prick sometimes. I'm not talking about NPD, the diagnosis. I'm saying, yeah, yeah I can be a narcissistic. I totally is. I was a narcissistic but, prick there. But it's sometimes and I'm not a narcissist. Like, yeah, it sometimes becomes like virtue signaling or like gaslighting, and you have to adhere to the total ideology of their preferred perception. And that's sometimes Correct. what I see in people with identity politics and then it turns into intersectionalism that yeah i think yeah. i think uh, gay people should be like this yeah i think totally like this yeah i think transgender should be respected yeah, yeah totally like that's toxic masculinity but then there's one thing that is like mm, i don't really agree towards the fact that uh, men could identify as women and then go swimming in the in the female pools or female saunas and then that one thing they don't agree on but they have a lot of stuff in common right like fighting for certain justice etc it's like what ostracized you has to disappear from the tribe because you don't adhere to this one thing that you also have to agree on and i hope people don't agree with 100 percent and make up their own mind they can always like disagree but sometimes you see that like if you don't align completely with what i say in my reality and our tribe you get cast out if you find yourself using language that says if you ever catch yourself saying and if you don't agree then you're wrong, you're part of the problem, da 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 You're borderlining on gaslighting and narcissism, even though when, you know, you might feel perfectly justified for it. So yeah, this, this is all the product of unresolved trauma. We all are become covert narcissists. <laughs> we invalidate other people. And I realized this, I was like, my parents are narcissists. My parents are narcissists. Mm-hmm. My parents, like I, I was fed that story and it's true hundred percent. They don't have an ability to empathize. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, I get that, you know, it's, they didn't growing, you know, with us growing up, it was, it was just the way that we were raised. But I kept saying, you guys are narcissists yeah, yeah, yeah. until my dad, my dad basically said, narcissist, we're, we're the narcissist. How about you empathizing with us? And then I mm-hmm. said, well, that's exactly what a narcissistic parent would say. <laughs> but then I t- kind of thought about it for a moment and I was like, oh my gosh. And literally the second that I was able to truly empathize with him, but not by abandoning myself first, I empathized with myself. Then I hit pause and I said, what was their history? Why did it did it make sense for them to act to, to behave and show up exactly as they did? Then I was like, oh, then it turns to understanding. As soon as I started to understand them, I was no longer a victim to them. This is what I believe in in, in this work. What I've noticed is you can't play victim to somebody that you empathize with. You can't be the victim. To somebody that you have empathy for. And I'm not saying Stockholm syndrome, abandon yourself and just take care of them yeah, and empathize yeah. with them. I'm saying after you, you take care of you, empathize with you. And while in your healing work, what went on for them, once you see what was going on and their woundings and how they were behaving exactly appropriate, given appropriately, given their wounding, 
you no longer will feel at the effect and victimization of them. That's the key component to breaking the cycle is through empathy, but empathizing with yourself first. And very few people really understand the skill of empathy. It's very interesting what you say, because when you take a look at sometimes the whole polarization, like we're right, they're wrong and the black and white stuff. A lot of the things that I base everything I do on is mutual responsibility. Like, let me listen to you. Let me understand where you come from. Let me see what I can do. And then maybe you can listen to me and look at it from the other side. But what sometimes happens is that they think that if you wouldn't acknowledge people as a victim, and sometimes now it's being rewarded because they get all the attention, which feeds that pattern of being a victim. The opposite is not saying you're not a victim. If you, you're still a victim of intergenerational trauma, you just empower yourself by breaking the cycle and getting inside. So it's not that I'm ignoring the trauma or not ignoring that you're a victim, but we're putting it in an empowering, in an interconnected circle that you can actually break the chain and understand yourself those who caused it and the context in which it's happened a lot better. So then it's an end end, but we seem to live in a society that's like an either or black and white. Yeah. You're for us or you're against us. And that's often is very clear and polarizing, but that's often not how reality works or long time sustainable change will actually happen. Yeah. Black and white, black and white thinking is the inner, is the wounded inner child in us. The wounded inner child inside of us sees the world as comfort, discomfort, black, white, two colors. And only by integration of our shadows and healing can we then see the different colors that are are part of our experience. But anytime I catch myself thinking always, never, black, white, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm full of shit right now. (laughs) So this is work of really being able to spot our ego. Healing work in order for you to truly heal, you must become a master at observing the ego. But most of us, especially, you know, in the extremes of our, our societies, uh, are really stuck, so stuck at the effect of our ego that we can't see it. So you can't see it when you're possessed by it. So, you it, know, it's it also, takes- also a problem when you're in the self-development industry, you're always focused on growing that you can then go through it and realize like, I already knew this. Why didn't I do this before? And you have this shame, you know, on top of working on it that you feel like, why is this not progressive? Why haven't I done this sooner? And you're just adding, you know, like baggage on your yeah. shoulder, you know? You just keep keep the blame train and the and beating yourself up going, which is all a product, it's all intergenerational wounding, beating ourselves up. And you're beating yourself up for beating yourself up. You're being anxious about being anxious. You're depressed about being depressed. Like that is self-consciousness. That is what, you know, Dostoyevsky talks about in Notes from the Underground, that gift of self-awareness, but also that curse of self-awareness. Yeah. And one of the key components to becoming trigger-proof and healing these intergenerational wounds is a lot of compassion towards yourself and other people and an ability to emotionally regulate. So this is probably the most important skill that is not taught to us, men especially, because we are taught to kind of gaslight our own feelings. That's why this work is so important to break the cycle and to take to realize there's nobody to blame for this. It's just just to take responsibility. That's what this is all about. Could you talk a bit about enmeshment and codependency and what it is and why yeah. this energetic bond affects us so much and where it comes from? Yeah. Enmeshment is that experience of not having a clear definition around yourself, your values, your identity, your feelings, your opinions. And it's what happens is, is that I don't have a good definition of who I am. And as a child, to be safe, I had to become very preoccupied with the internal world, with with the thinking and the internal world of my parents, for example, that I, if they're not okay, I couldn't be okay, right? Enmeshment is when my son is teething and he's crying, there's this part of me that can't be okay if he's crying. Mm -hmm. And I make it mean that it means that I'm a bad father, that he's crying. That's mm-hmm. enmeshment, right? But when and, and that's what creates codependency. It's, it's a lack of definition of what's mine and what's yours. And it's the fear of expressing what's inside of me in fear that you're going to abandon me and leave me. So I have to hide parts of who I am. 
And this is the real epidemic that's happening. And this messes up our relationships, destroys our self-esteem. And this lack of boundary definition between ourselves and others is one of, as Gabor Mate shares, is the number one cause of chronic illness. It's basically, it's a measurement. It's an inability to differentiate differentiation between ourselves and other people, caring so much about what you think of me, caring so much about what the world thinks of me, caring so much about what my partners, like literally that I lose myself. And this is what creates this need to find validation externally, whether it's a person or it's a group of people, money, fame, whatever, we become needy, lost souls looking for approval outside of us. And healing is about creating it from within. Well, I think also a great book that started my self-development journey was A Man's Search for Himself by Rollo May. And he also talks about the quest to find your own identity, your self-responsibility. And that's often you develop in very close, tight relationship or in solitude. But when you talk now about that external validation, we have this narcissist you know, mirror by Facebook and all the tools like likes, engagement, like, you know, our identity is molded by what gets rewarded by our tribe. But the tribe now is so many people on Facebook. So that imagement, that codependency, like you have to be a certain way to be liked, is getting worse and worse and worse to develop that that part of yourself in solitude that you can protect, that you can hone, that you discover, and that, you know, this is uniquely me without it being approved, liked, validated by other people around us. You're absolutely right. This is, it's getting worse. And this intergenerational trauma, it's kind of going like this. It's been like, it's been continuously going. And then right now with social media, it's going to just get worse because now we have a bunch of kids Basically, every child in in high school pretty much has anxiety now. (laughs) Every child. It's hard to find a child that doesn't have anxiety. Anxiety is a great indicator of unhealed abandonment, enmeshment, wounds. We have ADD, we have autism, we have social social, uh, awkwardness, etc. Addictions, addictions, like it's all anxiety. It's all a response to anxiety, this lack of safety, this lack of self-trust. We don't trust ourselves because of this. Aren't you based on healing and attachment and everything's going on? Because that is something that often is not talked about. I'm extremely worried of this generation of children that is being deprived of touch, being deprived of intimate social correction, interaction, deep relationships, communication, like all this is filtered we're, we're, through, you know, e- the masking of the body. So you see less of the body language, the intimate communication, and then everything is like online filtered through the likable yeah. language of social media. So I'm very worried what's happening with yep. these children who are raised in this, this way of living and approaching the world. What will happen with these children is we get stuck at the age emotionally of our wounding. So anything that's underdeveloped, we have underdeveloped nervous systems because of this, and we have an underdeveloped ability to self-regulate. And this is exactly what anxiety is. Anxiety is an inability to self-regulate from basically a wounded child that's screaming to you. There's a part of you that's asking for a reunion. And because because we haven't been taught the skills of reconnecting those parts, we then label ourselves with illnesses and disorders and then medicate to try to numb ourselves from feeling, but we got to actually do the opposite. We got to be, become more willing to feel and take on the role that it's not, our goal is not to feel better. Our goal is to get better at feeling. And once we get better at feeling shitty, feeling sad, feeling guilty, then we're able to tolerate uncomfortable emotions and have adult discussions and break the cycle. But unless we are unable to tolerate these feelings because we're so dissociated from them, we then have anxiety and we hide and our worlds get smaller and more disconnected in a very connected world. Yeah, there was also a study, I think, at the end of World War II in Holland. There were, they even had to eat like flowers or whatever. There was a huge famine, right? And then there were babies who were being born. And 
biologic biologically those babies are being sent to signal like how much food is that in the world so they follow these babies that were born back then and these babies actually you know they absorb every calorie calorie that was necessary when they were you know surviving and now they are like very prone to be obese because they keep every calorie that they can capture because they were raised in a situation where that was adaptable when I think now of children being raised in an environment of anxiety in their parents, anxiety in society, anxiety on TV, I'm really wondering what their worldview is. Because even if the world improves, as we talked about before, a lot of these things are phantoms of the past in the haunted house that is your yeah, mind. Well, it's, we're, we're now starting a new wave, wave after wave of mental illness that's going to come on the other side of this. That's why I've kind of upgraded my education to somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be creating kind of facilitation for coaches and healers and therapists to become more trauma informed and to help break those cycles. So I'm going to be, I'm now adapting my training to help with this because relationships are going to be affected. Health is now going to be affected. Everybody's afraid of one another. You know, you're, we're raising children to, to fear one another you know, to fear people. And so I'm raising my son quite differently. So my child was born in 2020, for God's sakes. So this is a very important conversation for me. And I think also the way to bypass our pain has never been bigger because we can replace our intimate needs by technological needs, or we can do it by consumerism. And then we just displace the core need by something that temporarily just numbs it. You've just nailed the big why as to how we're fucked if we don't actually all take responsibility. And it probably will take us one or two generations, like mm -hmm. the work that I'm doing and the inner work that I'm doing and to make sure that I'm, you know, creating a stable home for my child. I'm sure that my son is probably going to get like a little bit of it. So it'll probably just, it, it won't be just for me. Like he'll probably end up having up fuck him up in a, in my own <laughs> special way. I'm sure <laughs> I, I, you can't predict, right. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sitting here thinking that I'm going to be like God's gift to parenting. I'm sure I'm going to ha have something, but uh, it's going to take, what I'm saying is it's going to take a couple of generations for us to unwind this. If people are willing to do the work, but it's just so scary to do the work, right. We just don't want to do it. We want other people to fix our lack of safety inside. I don't feel safe being here. And it's your, it's Donald Trump or Biden's responsibility or mm -hmm. my doctor's responsibility or my therapist's responsibility to get rid of this, this lack of safety feeling I have inside. So uh, I just want to teach people. I'm here to teach people to take responsibility, not blame, no blame, but responsibility to go inside and to learn how to master taking your triggers and turning them into deeper self-love and compassion and taking your conflicts and turning them into deeper intimacy. When you do, you can have conflict and arguments in relationships, but they don't end up becoming like abusive or threatening to, you know, because we don't have a tolerance of communication, difficult conversations. I know there's a, it was from Jung, but I think Jordan Peterson quoted it by saying, uh, what if meaning is the way of the universe to show where your potential lies? Isn't in a way also anxiety a kind of way to show where your deep transformation lies, where the wonderful 100%. It's a gift. Anxiety and depression are not mental illnesses. They're not disorders. They're states of our nervous system that are protective because there are parts of us, younger parts, that don't feel safe. And so we can't talk those places. You can't be talked into safety. Those parts of us need to be shown safety through the body. I heard a quote that says, uh, depression is when the life is sucked out of sadness. Is it the fact that people are not like going to sadness or mourning? Or is it more that... The most depressed people are the ones with the happiest fantasies about their mm. lives and who don't allow themselves to feel sadness. See, I can be sad and go, oh, fuck, I'm sad. But if I wake up and I have sadness, and then I have another thought that says, I shouldn't be sad. I'm broken because I'm sad. Now I have depression because I'm invalidating myself. 
But if you've ever watched the movie from Pixar, it's called Inside Out. She, this little depressed little girl, is such a beautiful movie. Mm. This depressed little girl that all of a sudden healed her depression when she was willing to own and integrate her sadness, right? So if I live in this fantasy life that I have to be happy and positive and successful, when the other side of my existence, my shadow part, the sad, angry, unworthy part of me shows up, I invalidate him. I'm now in war with myself and now I have depression. What is something that you think could be the first thing for people to not get out of it maybe, but to do in a depression because you don't have a lot of energy. You don't want to go outside. Yeah. Like, no wonder so many people are depressed right now in lockdown. You mimic a lot of the symptoms that people have in a depression. Like 100%. Not, people, not want to go out, no sunlight, every totally. day the same, etc. What is a way to break the cycle or the first steps to deal with or come out of it? Well, I mean, geez, this is like case by case basis, but mm. moving your body is, is essential. And it's the thing that you're going to resist because you don't feel like it. And so here's the first thing that you want to do is stop gaslighting your sadness. Stop making yourself wrong for feeling your feelings. That's the first thing that you're going to do. It's the most difficult thing because you've been invalidating it because mm -hmm. of intergenerational trauma. You've been conditioned to invalidate yourself. So I'll tell you, stop invalidating yourself and just give yourself permission to feel sad. Just feel your sadness, right? But you don't know how to do that because it's like, I tell that to people. They're like, huh, what? I'm like, yeah, give yourself permission to feel like anxious and sad and, and in pain. They look at me, educated people. Yeah, yeah look at me. They're like, wait, what? And I'm like, now you know why you're depressed because you're fucking invalidating yourself. You're resisting the resistance. Make friends with the resistance because it's a part of you that's trying to protect you, right? So you want to start to change your relationship with your emotional state by seeing how this is serving you. No, it's not serving me. No, 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 no. Stop looking at that and go, What is this protecting me from doing? And oftentimes, the depression is your body trying to stop you from living a life that's not congruent. Yeah, it's sometimes right? a matter of rearranging priorities because I'm still a recovering perfectionist slash workaholic. It's one of the most condoned addictions in the world, workaholicism. Mm -hmm. So it's like- I used to be like you too. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't put it like in a priority. It's always like, you know, working on my business, working on my busyness, you know, numbing myself out. So sometimes, yeah. and I'm still, it's it's a huge task. I'm more What and more opening up. What you want to do up. is ask this. You want to do, I'm jumping in right here. I, I Intuitive hit, I got to jump sure. in and tell you this. Philip, the first step to this is to acknowledge why this is protective. Mm -hmm. No behavior that you're doing is really sabotaging you. Get that word out. It's actually protective. There's a younger part of Philip that's protecting you. And I'm just kind of taking a wild guess and just saying it's the little boy inside that is, is trying not to be insignificant, trying not to be a failure. So by being busy working unconsciously is exhausting you, but he's actually helping you. Your first step to healing this is to make peace with it and friends with that part. So you've now dropped your resistance to the resistance. That's the, the first step. The second part is also that that part of me thinks like, if I would stop that, that would be the death of me, right? Like if I would have more vulnerable work, if I would have more shadow work, if I were just shit, no, not shit, maybe shit. If I would just be present, if I would just relax, if I would just meditate, then it's actually going to serve away. me, you know? Yeah, but it's like, no, people no, that would be the death of me. People are going to go yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah, if I, if I pause and not keep working and giving up myself and abandoning myself and trying to rescue, then I'm not going to be important anymore. Your first step, is to acknowledge that, right? And just say, thank you for keeping me, like looking out for me. The second step, 90% of people won't do. That's why they want to, that's why they will stay depressed. They, that's why they choose to stay depressed after they realize this, is that in order for you to release that, you have to go after that insignificant little boy. 
because this was me too. I was like, mm-hmm. I got to do a Facebook live every day. I got to every single day. I got otherwise they're going to leave me. And if I keep going because I have to prove myself. Why? Because I'm not good enough as I am. Okay. So my next step is to find out how old do I feel there? All right. There's a nine-year-old here that I can recognize. And what I'm going to do is the exact opposite is I'm going to feel insignificant for about 10 minutes. I'm going to turn on music. I'm going to run. And I'm just going to give myself the permission to cry the tears of my insignificance because that's what I'm busy, busy, busy trying to avoid. What you do is you go back and address the resistance of what you're trying to avoid. And when you allow yourself to feel that and maybe have some tears about it, all of a sudden, you now, when the emotions have run through, it takes about five to 10 minutes. Maybe, you know, you get those emotions out, maybe even getting some screaming out. Why don't, why was I never good enough? Ah, mm-hmm. Right? Like, because it's stuck in your body. This is energy in your body. Stuck energy, survival stress stuck in your body is depression. So you moving it through sound, motion, emotion, and it comes out, then it's kind of like the clouds depart when you allow the feelings, which is a part in and of itself, you will resist it. That's why you have to have a mentor to guide you through this. You likely won't be able to do this alone. All of a sudden, it kind of, the clouds go away. And then you see the sun that was always there. You're like, wait, that's not who I am. That's actually just only a part of it, but that's not all of it. And then you start to see the other side. So only by acknowledging and feeling the pain of your insignificance and unworthiness are you going to be able to open up like a container for your worthiness and, and good enoughness <laughs> to to come in. So it's a it's a tough thing to do. Yeah, and, and it's, it's also, not a disorder. Honest, it's a skill. It, it's also a bit of a lifestyle design in the beginning. If you're going to make sure that every free time is always filled with work, it's also a matter of setting boundaries about how much you work or giving yourself room to play and enjoy, which as a workaholic is difficult. But it's like, yeah, now you have no excuse. Like you can still do your thing, but now with some room, we know you need this instead of always saying like, no, I'm running behind. But partly you just fill your agenda to the top and you never get mm-hmm. to doing the deeper work, right? I don't know. What what was your portal into facing yourself and running against the wall and say like, hey, dude, <laughs> we can't I keep realized, doing, doing I realized what I was getting out of my whole I'm so busy story. I'm so busy and overwhelmed story. And what I realized is, is through deep introspection and shadow work, and it was a painful revelation, was that I was choosing the struggle Mm-hmm. so that I can feel a sense of significance. And it was very familiar. Like you said before, there's a familiarity to it. There's a familiarity to it. And I get to feel important and kind of fun. I'm a drama queen. I recreate my own dramas, stories, so that I can feel the sense of adventure. And then I realized that I was choosing my own struggle. This is the key. I made this one statement. I wrote it and I I share this with my clients. I'm powerfully choosing this struggle because I get to feel important. And once I acknowledge that and I gave permission and showed compassion to, instead of going, you fucking loser piece of shit. Why did you do that? You're such an idiot for doing that. I said, Congratulations for creating all of this drama and chaos and busyness to perpetuate the story of your relevance. Way to go. Once I did that and honored it and joined it, then I could lead it into other strategies for getting that. What other strategies can I use to get significance, to get a sense of adventure, to get a sense of, you know, control, familiarity? I was like, oh, I'm going to pour this into my family, parenting my son, hanging out with him. And so now, instead of having my unconscious run my life, I consciously chose the form of significance because we have these needs, but our busyness and workaholism is meeting those needs. And until you see how it's meeting those needs and you create another alternative viable option, more viable option, you're going to constantly choose that one. 
Yeah, and that's what I learned about nonviolent communication, that we have a favorite strategy on how we would love our needs to be met or love, love to have our needs to be met. But when you find the need, it doesn't necessarily have to be by your favorite strategy. So maybe you would love to have a good relationship with your dad or you'd love to have certain things go well. When you find the need, there are other strategies how you can also fulfill it. Maybe not your favorite, but still it can fulfill it instead of always totally. wanting it through one specific strategy. And then it doesn't work and you're triggered and your whole world crumbles down. Well, if you don't create a strategy consciously, Phil, then your unconscious will create an unhealthy way of getting those needs met. You know, Carl Jung says, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you'll call it fate. So these are unconscious strategies of getting our needs met. Overwhelm, procrastination, toxic relationships, like health problems. Believe it or not, I mean, think about it. If you're a child, I see this a lot. This is why I left chiropractic. If you're a child and you have no attention from your family because they're all completely alcoholics or depressed or completely dissociated and not attuned to you, and the only time you're ever going to find any attention is when you get sick, guess what's going to happen? And that's where you feel love. Sickness equates to love. You now have an unconscious mm -hmm. wiring strategy of finding love when you don't do it consciously, you'll do it with an illness or an injury. And until you make the unconscious conscious and go, hmm, what am I getting out of this illness? Oh my God, I get attention. I don't feel rejected. I, I, I feel loved unconditionally. I don't have to I don't have to, the pain of saying oh, no and feeling rejection. I just go, well, you know what? It's the anxiety. You know what? It's the fibromyalgia. I have an excuse. I have all of Let's these Let's talk benefits. about a painful situation. If you become aware to this process and you learn about nonviolent communication and triggers, and then you see it happening in someone that is a close relative or someone you can just say goodbye to, that is painful when you see that path because you can't say like, I know what's going on. I will tell you what you have, you know, like. What do you think it's like to be me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't only see it in my family. I see it in everybody. I see it through your language. I listen to people's victim stories day in and day out. And I literally see right through what they're saying. And what I realized is people don't want, not everybody wants to heal. Mm -hmm. This was, this was a big aha for not everybody wants to heal. They think they do, but they are unaware of their unconscious strategies to push healing away. And it's kind of like weight loss. You can't tell someone, Hey, Philip, you need to lose 20 pounds. That's for Philip to go, you know what? I'm a fat piece of shit right now. <laughs> I don't like how I've been feeling and looking and I'm just joking around. I don't mean to, mm. I just feel, Ugh, I got to do something about it. It's it, Philip's got to decide internally. So you have to have a very acute, distinct, distinct discernment of, am I helping this person? They're asking me or they're saying it. I can see through their problem. What I realize is most people just want to be validated. So I go, yeah, that must be hard. Unless they're asking mm -hmm. you for yeah. advice, unless they're paying me, I'm not going to try to fix them and solve them. I just, my job is to just meet them where they're at and be a loving awareness. Hey, I see you, man. Must be hard. I, without naming names, I had this with a girl who had a mother who was a kind of in this, you know, constantly ill. And then they had to come over and take care of her. What if... You know, you don't want to change them, but they keep on reinforcing that negative path and that you feel I'm contributing to this. What yes, you you're enabling it. Yeah, you're enabling it, but they are mm -hmm. still like a close narrative. So, you know, like what do you do in that situation? That's tough. You know, you set your boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's about setting boundaries. And it's a very fine line between rescuing somebody. This is what I go through with my clients because... My clients are coming to me in crisis and distress, and usually they're stuck in a drama triangle where they're looking for a rescuer. Yeah. And my work is not to rescue them. My work is to empower them mm -hmm. to rescue themselves. So I'm constantly through almost every DM or question, I got to weigh this fine line. Do Am I enabling them? Or mm -hmm. so, so even with clients who pay me, 
I go through this, right? Because my job, if I'm doing it effectively, is to empower them to help themselves. So, you know, you have to give me a specific example and I'll be able to navigate it in that moment because there's no, it's not Mm -hmm. like one rule, right? It's case dependent and it's all dependent. What's the outcome that you want? You got to constantly go to what's the outcome that I want. Keep asking yourself, what's my outcome? My mother is, you know, asking me to help her. What's the outcome? Well, yeah, I'm a chiropractor. She's got back pain. Of course, I'm going to help her, even though she's not doing the stretches and da 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 da. Yes, no problem. But other times, I might say no, depending, right? Because I'm because this is also a different thing, a difficult thing. Sometimes, let's say that somebody would be you had to play like the the ill of Moliere, that they were constantly acting like they were like ill, but they weren't like ill anymore. So at a certain point, you do want to draw the boundary and say like, I'm not going to do this anymore. There's the limit. But you know what? People expect you to act a certain way. Right. And then when you right. suddenly stand up for yourself or you change yes. your communication, there will very, be a challenge. There that's will be, be very back. uncomfortable because you always did this. You change, but Correct. even if you change for the better, right? That is like right, very right. confronting for, for people. Yeah. When you start doing healing work and start saying no when you usually said yes, the person hearing the no, be prepared for their abandonment wounds to come up right? If I'm in victimhood, I say, you asked me to help you move because I've always helped you move. Philip, you and I are buddies for years. Let's say, you say, hey, Nima, I'm moving again for the eighth time in the last three months. <laughs> Could you come and help me again? I'll be, I'll say, you know what, Phil? No, thank this time. Really? I got to spend that time with my family. And then you turn around mm-hmm. and what? you go, what the fuck? What are you? Are, are, aren't we supposed to be friends? Are you not my friend? And then I'll, I'll be like, And then, so if I've done my own healing, if I've done the work, I'll be able to say, I know I've said yes to you the whole time. You know, truth, I've just, a lot of the time I was saying it because I wanted your approval and I'm glad to have helped you. But right now, you know, my back is really sore from all the, all that. I don't think I can take it. I think it'd be great if you could hire a moving company this time and I understand if that would be confronting to you and let me know. I hope my friendship with you is not determined, is not based on me constantly being able, able to help you move. You know, I'll be able to set boundaries like this, mm-hmm. you know, and when, when you set a boundary, when the other person, if you do, you can do it in a way that doesn't minimize another person. That's an art as well. But if they do get triggered and upset and defensive about it, you can be understanding rather than play the victim. Yeah, that, that that reminds me of saying like people are not against you, they are for themselves. <laughs> and then you right. can kind of understand why people do things. If people want to check out more about all the stuff that you're doing, where can they find out more about you? And uh... The best place to go is my Facebook community. It's now got almost 6,000 people. It's called Trigger Proof. And I do Facebook Lives there. I do posts. There's a community there questions, people ask questions. So that's the best place to to start. I have Instagram, of course. I do a clubhouse room every Friday on, it's called Manxiety. It's men and anxiety. And we we discuss that. And all the Manxiety show, I do it with Russell Kennedy, my good friend. Yeah, essentially easy to find. I'm not difficult. My website is really a great place to look. And if you join my Facebook community and you enter your email in the space provided, you get a 90-minute training that's absolutely free that takes you uh, through the process of becoming trigger proof from nervous system regulation to clearing your past resentments to dancing with your dark passenger that ego work to empathically communicating with self and other and then commitment and community that take you through the steps that you can learn what is the last thing you would say to when we ease the lockdown and all these children that's been raised with these anxiety problems? So what are some tips? What are some things that you say as a new parent or learning about trauma that you would say, hey, parents, people, work on this heal with your, your children? Heal your attachment wounds. Make your number one priority to heal your own attachment wounds and become trigger-proof, which means not trigger-less. It means taking your trigger and turning that trigger within minutes into self-love and the conflict between you and the other person into deeper intimacy. Those two, their skills, those two skills are the skills that you're going to pass on to your children, quite frankly, because that's where you learned it. 
you learned from your parents how to deal with conflict and adversity. You learned from them. You're teaching that to your children. And those two skills are not actually taught in school from a somatic-based approach. Anger management, you can go there and do an anger management, and it just talks to you cognitively of what anger is, but it doesn't teach you in the moment of trigger how to turn that into deeper self-love and openness, right? And that's probably the greatest skill we can learn as parents, we can learn as entrepreneurs, we can learn as human beings, because our nervous systems, this state of regulation, dysregulation will determine our entire being. It determines our the thoughts that we have. Our thoughts aren't, our thoughts don't create our state. Our state, our state determines our thoughts. I had it backwards. That's the big one. If we learn how to master our own nervous systems and become trigger proof, we then slow down this train, moving train of intergenerational trauma. And now we turn into a humanity, a race of people who now become healthy and resourced from within. And when we look at how, what, how important that is for the planet, look at that picture. I have the picture of the earth there mm-hmm. behind me as a reminder. The earth is an organism and we are the cells. We are the individual cells, right? I want you to look at it that way. It's one organism and human beings are the cells. And if the cells are sick, the whole world will be sick financially, religion, politics. It's all fucking sick right now, isn't it? Because the, the collective individual cells are sick. So if we just stop trying to point fingers at the world to try to make us healthy and we just go inside to heal our nervous systems becomes an act of changing the world. Working with the body, parenting our trauma, parenting our triggers, parenting ourselves, and that way we can inspire our children and coming generations to have a more healthy uh, humanity. I'm totally supporting this mission in this. Otherwise, we're fucked, Philip. Otherwise, we're fucked. There's There's nobody coming to rescue us. Thanks so much for sharing your fucking (laughs) empowering vision about humanity to cleanse ourselves and then heal the planet and heal ourselves. Thanks so much for being a guest on the episode, man. Thank you, brother. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.